I'd like to ask you to think about something with me for just a few moments. If you've been at fellowship for some time, you're going to say maybe, you know, that's a really odd question to ask at church. I'm going to ask us to think about it because our answer to this question, I think, reveals one of, if not the most important thing about our life. It reveals what we live for. It reveals why we live. It, it tells us where our deepest hope resides. If you have your Bible, would you take it, please? Hold it. Um, don't open it, but I want you to just take it. Everybody, if, if, again, if it's electronic, hold it in your hand. But uh, take your Bible. I want you to hold the Bible in your hand and, and just looking at it. Here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to consider for a moment... <laughs> How do people view this? What are some categories, what are some ways that people look at the Bible and therefore interact with this book we study? How do do they see it? I've got some categories just to kind of move us along, help us. That, that, that can, can, can help us see how others see the Bible. I mean, they see it. Some, some, I think, may see it as an encyclopedia, maybe an old world book encyclopedia. This isn't one, but it looks like one. Uh, an encyclopedia, you know, you take an encyclopedia and, and you go, man, it's full of facts and truth. But honestly, it was written, I mean, this thing is like the 1998 uh, edition. There's a lot in that encyclopedia that's just... Hey, we've learned so much over the years, it's no longer, you know, it's really not completely true. And some look at the Bible that way, you know, I mean, there's some truth in here, but come on. I mean, what we know now, you know, it's not all true. Some view it that way. Another way people may view the Bible is as a a diet book. How about the the ultimate self-help genre, huh? Uh, and, And the bottom line is, we all know that what's in this book is good for me, right? It's not like it's bad. I know what's in there is good for me. I, I, it, it, you know, for my health. But, you know, I just don't have the willpower, want to or whatever to stay in it to experience that benefit. Another way that some may look at the Bible is I've got a book of children's stories here. And some may look at the Bible and go, you know, it's My goodness, there's some amazing stories in there. I don't know if anyone saw of Gods and Kings. I didn't see it, but I read a story on uh, Ridley Scott, the director. You know, and he he says, look, yeah, I mean, it's an, I mean, it's not true, of course. No, no, that didn't happen, but I can make an unbelievable movie out of that thing. It's great. And so many people may view the Bible like a children's story. You know, it's wonderful. It's clever. And in fact, there's some moral truths in here and parables. You know, there's, there's some good things in here. They're just not real. But the truths, you know, I think we ought to follow some of the truths and some may approach the Bible in the same way. The last one uh, that I'll go through, we could go through the whole morning doing this, but some may see the Bible as a car manual. I was driving here yesterday with my youngest daughter, Sally, and she said, what are you doing with these books? I said, well, I'm going to talk about things the way we view the Bible. I said, some of you as a car manual. She goes, that's a good one because you never take it out unless something's wrong. Now, now she meant the you in general. Like, like people never take it out. Like, when's, when, when do you take out your car manual? When you have a flat 
and you don't know where the jack is, right? I mean, where do they, where do they put that thing in this car, you know, and you go looking for it? Some people view the Bible, honestly, it's, it's made to maintain your car. There's nothing wrong with it. It's all true. But, you know, I'm just going to, I got a problem. I'm going to take it out when I have that problem. The, the problem with all these views of the Bible is they are, as you know, incomplete, even though there's a little bit of truth in every one of them. You could still put them all together and they would still not be the whole truth. You see, the problem with any view of the Bible, here, here's the key that's going to carry us for, actually for the next 10 weeks. Any view of the Bible that's less than what the Bible says of itself is insufficient, incomplete, it's not enough. <laughs> And it will not satisfy. Listen, you can come to the Bible all day long, like a car man, I've got a problem, I'm gonna find this one thing. You can come to it like an encyclopedia, you know, but some of it's not true. It will not satisfy. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells us that we are not a satisfied people. I'm gonna change the terminology. It says this, we are a thirsty people. <laughs> you, you can't escape it. We're all born to thirst. Physically thirst. We totally get that. But I want to suggest the Bible says we are spiritually thirsty. Uh, you may be wondering, Lloyd, okay, what does, what does thirst and satisfaction have to do with how we view the Bible. I think it has everything to do with how we view the Bible. It's why we are beginning today a new series. It'll be a little different for us. We're going to do 10 weeks uh, where we are going to explore what the Bible says about the Bible. Again, whatever the Bible says about itself is the only true answer to the question, how do we view it? Anything less than that is wrong. Uh, there are a number of images, metaphors that the Bible just uses of itself. We've chosen one that's gonna be in front of us the entire time. We'll come back to it over and over. One way that the Bible pictures itself is as a picture of cool, refreshing, pure water. It's an apt metaphor. You and I know that you cannot live without water. You know, our bodies are 60% water. You know, this, this just is, this makes sense, right? That every neural biochemical reaction transmitter that has to happen within our bodies to live requires what? Say it. What does it require? It requires water, you see. When they go and explore planets, they're on Mars. We're trying to find out, could there be life on Mars? They're, trust, they're not looking for trees and things. What are they looking for? Water. No water, no life. Men and women, there are organisms that can live without oxygen. They can live in boiling temperatures. They can live in freezing temperatures. But nothing, nothing lives without water. And this image is going to be before us through this series because by the end of it, I hope, we hope that you understand this book is, is not about this, you know. <laughs> this book 
these words are words of life, of life that refresh, restore, renew, and yes, satisfy. Now, I'm going to introduce this. It's just an introductory message to this series. I'm going to, I'm going to do so uh, by uh, taking us to, to two uh, primary texts. Uh, one has to do with a most unusual famine, and the other has to do with an amazing feast. So those are the two things we're going to cover this morning, an unusual famine and the story of an amazing feast. If you have your Bibles, open them now to the book of Amos, the book of Amos. And if you go to Amos, one of the best ways to get there is to go to Matthew and then back into the Old Testament about an eighth of an inch. You know, that's going to get you to the book of Amos. I, I can't cover the whole book by any means, but uh, we can get the gist of it uh, primarily in this way. What was going on in Israel, because Amos prophesies to the northern kingdom, about 750 BC, he's prophesying to the northern kingdom, Israel, 10 tribes. What was life like? What was going on that sets the stage for his prophecy? When we understand that, we understand the book of Amos. I think we can capture uh, the state of Israel uh, in those immortal words from Charles Dickens as he began his classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the it was the best of times in Israel. It was the worst of times in Israel. Ken Boa writes, quote, Amos prophesies during a period of national optimism in Israel. Business is booming and boundaries are bulging. I love that phrase, end quote. It is wonderful in Israel. Now you gotta understand, they've only been a nation themselves a very short time because of the civil war and their split northern southern kingdom. But they are in this, in God's providence. You know, it's not always like this, but in his providence, in this time when Amos speaks, they are at the zenith of their independence. They are at the height of their economic, social, material state. The borders are safe. If we put it in our own terms, we just go, the market is up. People have got everything they need and then some. It's not an exaggeration to say it was a time of abundance and unprecedented prosperity. Now it's one thing to say that's true because of the righteousness of the king and people. But it's the exact opposite. Okay? It's the exact opposite in Israel at this time. In fact, their material abundance blinded them to their spiritual poverty. I've got just a word to say about that. I mean, we're not even into the book of Amos, but I'm just going to give you two things to consider. Because there's just a warning in that. Number one, material prosperity can mask spiritual poverty for a time, but not indefinitely. It won't. Spiritual or material prosperity can mask spiritual poverty for a time, but not forever. And the second real warning here is what you most have can keep you from what you most need. Just ponder that, you know, it's just, this is a proverb, stick in your head. What, what you have most of can actually keep you from 
that which you most need. Well, enter the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Follow along in your Bibles the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa when he envisioned in visions concerning Israel. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. There's your time stamp when he is speaking. Verse 2, he said, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherds pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Verse 2 is a synopsis of the message of Amos. This is what the book's about. God's voice goes out from where? Jerusalem, where it belongs. God's voice goes out, and as it does, notice the shepherd's pasture lands mourn. What does that mean? It means in the low-lying, fresh, vegetative pasture lands, they're going to dry up. And on the top of Mount Carmel, what does it mean? From the lowlands to the highlands and everything in between, God's voice, God's word goes out and it is a voice of judgment and destruction and devastation. And we go, why God would you do that to your people? Well, chapter three, verses one and two tell us this. He does does it because of their iniquities because of their sin, because of their transgression, because as you read the book, you'll see, because huge, huge issue, they oppress the poor. They built their wealth on the backs of the poor because a man and his son sleep with the same woman. There's just blatant immorality everywhere because you worship pagan gods, because you make idols, because you worship, in, I mean, just go on and on and on and on. They're They're away from God. How would I summarize this? Because they refused to hear the voice of God turn their back and chose their own way. Now, God, when he disciplines his people, if you read chapter four, he always disciplines to bring them back. But if you read chapter four, five times it says, I did this, but you did not return to me. I did this, but you did not return to me. I did this, but you did not. I did this, but you did not return. I did this, but you did, you know, on and on. So it's his heart of compassion by which he even uses plagues and famine and all things to bring them back to himself. While it was the best of times measured by worldly standards, okay, because it was. It was the best of times in worldly standards. It was the worst of times by spiritual standards, which takes us to an most, a most unusual famine. We're going to go all the way to chapter 8. Go all the way to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Note here, thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. Mm, that is judgment. That is a grave word from God. What we do know is this. Let's look, everybody look up here for a moment, just in terms of time and history. The birth of Christ, we're backing up this way. The time of Ezra, you remember Ezra was 550 to 450 B.C.? 
and then the birth of Christ. Uh, Amos is speaking 200 years before Ezra, so we're now at 750 B.C. What do we know happens in 722 B.C.? 750 B.C., 722 B.C., northern kingdom, southern kingdom, the Assyrians. See, this coming, he's saying it's the end, it's coming. And Israel, northern kingdoms, wiped off the map, wiped out of history. What's the picture he gives? Look at this. What do you see, Amos, a bowl of fruit? Yes, the fruit looks luscious on the outside. Pop it open. And it's rotten to the core. Then we come to verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. No word from God. There's no hearing God's word. His voice is silent to our ears. Kind of like the bell, you know, in Polar Express, the Christmas bell. You know, ding, ding, ding. But when you're shaking the kids going... It's us going, can't hear it, can't hear it. Why would that be so devastating to not hear the voice of God? I've told this story before, uh, but it, it fits, I think, appropriately here. Um, I, um, you know, I grew up and I was a long-term bedwetter. It drove my college roommates crazy. Not, not <laughs> go back some. No, I'm a little younger. And um, you, know, you wake up, you know, all the boys in the room know this. You know, they, you, know you, you pee in your bed and you wake up on your knees, sleeping on your knees. Why? Because you just soaked your bed and pee, you know. Well, I moved out of that and I, I moved into, I'm too terrified to get out of bed and go to the bathroom. And so, uh, you know, I laugh at this because I'm growing up in a home. It's a little 1,300 square foot home in Clarksville. And, and, and in my home, my bedroom, literally, if I came to the door of my bedroom, okay, come to the door of my bedroom, I step across the little hall, I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> but at night when it's dark, you know, I wake up, I don't know what time it is. I'm just scared to death. It's pitch black. And I, I don't, I'm too terrified to go to the bathroom. And so what, what I would do, literally, I'm laying in bed and I would go, Mom, mom, mom. Now, if, what's funny to me on this is my kids go, Dad. You know, for some reason I went, Mom. And out of that darkness, I would hear this voice. I'm watching you. And I'd get up. And I go to the bathroom. Because in her voice, I had her presence. In her words, she was with me, you see. From Genesis to Revelation, how did it all begin? I mean, why is there something God spoke? Why, how did he redeem? He spoke. The covenant. God's voice is his presence. 
God's word is God with us. To not hear it, you see, is devastating. It's death. It's no life. Lloyd Ogilvie in his excellent commentary says this, quote, by far the greatest manifestation of the judgment of God on Israel's unrepentant hypocrisy will be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Note that it will not be a famine of the word of the Lord, but a famine of hearing the word. Hypocrisy has ripened to the place that the people no longer seek God's words, nor do they listen when he speaks. I love this phrase, a virus of unresponsiveness has debilitated the audio nerve in the souls of the people. For years, the people did not want to hear God. Now he will grant their desire, end quote. Now let's us be brutally honest. Let's fall in love with reality. We do not live in a day when there is a famine of the word. Are you kidding me? What color Bible do you want? How do you want it to read? Like a little girl, like a boy, like you want a teen Bible, you want an old person Bible, you want young person's Bible? Well, how many Bibles do you want? We, ha- we do not live in a famine of the word. No way. I've got more Bibles in my office than some people groups. That's not an exaggeration. No, no, no. The question for you and me is not, do we have it? What's the question? Do we, do we hear it? Now, when I say hear it, not this, I got a flat tire, I need help. That's not hear it. No, when I say do we hear it, I mean this way. Do we, I can't live without water. I can't live without it. That's do I, do I hear it? There's no life without it. That's the issue for us. Went to see Unbroken over the holidays some of you, I'm sure, did. Uh, you know, I've got this image in my mind. You don't even have to have seen the movie to have this image. But I, I was reflecting on, here's what I'm reflecting on. The abundant access that we have to the word. And yet, I'm speaking for me, the little influence many times that it has in my life. And then I'll speak for me and us, the little influence it has in our lives. I'm one of us. And I'm kind of thinking about that. That's just, why is that? And I got this, this, this picture in my mind. You know, two of them survived 47 days at sea. Uh, it, it, it's just such a strange scene, isn't it? And again, you don't have to have seen the movie because you've seen this probably. But to see people dying of dehydration, their lips cracking, their skin peeling, and they're bobbing on top of the largest body of water on the planet. Of course, it's undrinkable. We get that. But here's the picture I have in my mind of me, even of us in some ways. We're in a life raft. We're dying. Dehydrated. 
and we're bobbing. But we're not bobbing on the Pacific. We're bobbing in the middle of Lake Superior. The largest body of fresh water on the planet. And we're bobbing up and down. Dying. Thirst. What? Why? See, one lesson we can take away from Amos is this. Access to the word of God is not our problem. The problem is God's word having access to our hearts. That's where we are. Listen, the people in Amos' day had the word. <laughs> they had plenty of it. They had no access to their heart. Well, that's a most unusual famine, is it not? Let's look now quickly at a most amazing feast. Flip all the way over in your Bibles to the book of John. The book of John, chapter 7. I'm going to summarize this very quickly. John, chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths is the last big festival they had, the most well-attended. Uh, they would, for seven days, you see, live in these booths. What are you talking about, Lloyd? Think of a lean-to made with branches and limbs. Cut the branches and limbs, build your little lean-to, and for seven days you live in it. I mean, why does God have them live in lean-tos for seven days? Well, because it's a very physical reminder to them to remind them when God brought them out of slavery, okay, they had to live in these very fragile temporary weak booths, but God delivered them. And as fragile and weak as these little booths and temporary as these booths are, God is the exact opposite, strong and mighty, you see. And they lived that for seven days. Now, at this, uh, at this festival, every day, I'm going to use this. I actually used this back when I taught John, but rather than use this, but they, the, 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 the priest would take a, a jar and every day he would go from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And when he went to the pool of Siloam, he would dip in that pool of water and they would say, with joy we draw from the waters of salvation. And then the crowd would follow the priest back all the way to the temple. We got to the temple. He would raise this jar higher and higher. They go higher, 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 higher. And then he would pour the water on the altar. They did this for seven days. On the seventh day, they would actually make the trip from temple, the pool of Siloam, back to temple, higher, higher, pour the water seven times. Now, we don't, we don't know, I don't, I don't want to be dogmatic on this because we're not positive, but John seems to indicate that it's on this seventh day when they did it seven times. Seven, biblically, is, uh, is, is the picture of completion, fullness, seven. That it's on this day Jesus stands up and he changes the feast forever. Notice in your Bibles, John chapter 7, verse 37, or 35, yeah, 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow 
rivers of living water. Come to me. What is Jesus saying on this day of completion? He's saying, hey, the water you draw from the pool of the sent one. I'm the sent one. I'm the water. The altar you're pouring it on for the sacrifice. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. In other words, he's saying, it's time to put away the ceremony and the temple and come to the true temple for which it points. It's me. I'm the water that satisfies. I'm the only water. I'm life. Drink of me. That verb or those verbs come and drink are in the present tense. See what Jesus is saying is keep coming. Keep drinking, keep drinking. There is a moment in time when we come and drink and we believe our salvation. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, was buried and raised again, he did it for me. We believe, yes, but our growth and sanctification, we keep coming, we keep drinking, we keep coming. We, keep, he's our, we can't live without him, you see. Our salvation is secure, but we grow and we can't live without coming and drinking of Christ. Don't forget how John began his gospel, you remember this when we studied it, chapter one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the word. Lord, are you saying that the Bible and Jesus are the same? No, I'm saying they're inseparable. I'm saying, how do we come to Jesus? It's the word that tells us who he is, all that he is, and invites us to believe. I said earlier that all of us are thirsty. Some, some, in, some of you may have thought, well, I'm really not that thirsty, to be honest. Well, let me ask you to think about a question and answer it honestly, quietly. Have you ever wanted something so bad that eventually you actually got what you wanted? And when you got what you wanted, sometime later, in the quiet privacy of your own heart, you had this thought kind of cross your mind. Is that it? There's got to be more. Honestly, I, I, has anyone not ever felt that? I mean, anyone married ever felt that? You know, you know any, anyone, anything? We all do. Why? Because nothing can satisfy but Jesus, that's why. It's only satisfied by the water of life, the person of Christ, revealed through the words of life to us. That's why Jesus said to, the, to Satan, you remember, in his great temptation, what did he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on John, tells a story, draws it from the silver chair, which is out of the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, he captures what, uh, what we hope happens in many of us, even just a few of us. It would change us, a few of us, as we move through this series inviting us to come to the water of life. Jill has seen a lion and she flees into the woods 
She runs herself nearly to death. She thinks she's dying of thirst when she hears this babbling brook over here. And so she makes her way through the woods to come and she sees the water. She comes to the water, but right as she approaches the water, there is the lion. Aslan, of course. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step toward the water. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hands. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Is anyone thirsty? This is the water of life. So... So what? You ask that question. Would you just sit for a moment and I'll let the Spirit speak to you. So, so, so what do I do with this word of God? Would you consider that for a moment? Just ask the Lord, Lord, what do I need to believe, trust, do in your power? Consider that for just a moment. Let's stand together. I'm going to uh, dismiss us with a benediction. We're actually going to do it together. Stand up if you would, please. As you're standing, let me tell you where we're going. Next week, we will pick up uh, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, if you'd like to read ahead. Talking about a delight in the Word. Then we're going to do a message on how Jesus viewed the Word. What, what, what does Jesus think of the Bible? Certainly a good model for us. And then let me, real quickly, you know, we're going to hit authority, inspiration, sufficiency, inerrancy, necessity, clarity and exclusivity. And if you hear that and you go, oh my gosh, that sounds, trust me, trust me. If you hear those words, I hope what you hear is water flowing to your soul 
with those truths. I pray that's what will be for us. Also on the website, we got a, uh, some, some Bible reading plans. I just in, invite you to visit that. We'll have some resources there over the 10 weeks we're in this series. But you can pick up a Bible reading plan. It's January 1st. You know, kind of start, start reading your Bible. We'll talk more about that as we go through it. I've chosen this benediction very intentionally. Uh, we're going to lean upon and stand upon the shoulders of the church historic and that's why I want it, because we're, we're, we've never been alone in this. And these words remind us, you see, that, again, I want you to know our heart in this series is, is, is such that we don't, you don't feel like beat up by the Bible as much as you feel drawn to what we need most, words of life written, living, and active for us, you see. And this, this catechism actually addresses that because it reminds us, number one, what we were made for. And listen, we were made to be satisfied in God alone. That's what we're made for. And secondly, it reminds us that the only way we are is through his word revealing his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to recite in unison the answers to these first two questions of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the shorter catechism. I love these two. I love all of it, quite frankly, but uh, we're, we're going to do this, and so I'll ask you to speak it loudly and clearly. I'll ask the question. It'll be up on the side screens, and you will respond together with the answer. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God. Father, we pray that we might know the truths of these statements, that Your Word, written, living, and active, is life itself. In Christ's name, amen. God bless.